Hi, my name is Patrick Drake and I'm the head chef and co-founder at HelloFresh. And before we start today's podcast, I just want to tell you about one exciting development. Over the last six years, we've created some absolutely beautiful recipes and I've just put the top 100 recipes as voted for by hundreds of thousands of our customers into our new recipe book, Recipes That Work. So give it a look up on amazon.co.uk today. Thanks. Guys, today I'm really excited to invite Patrick Drake, the co-founder and head chef of HelloFresh. As a big fan of, of food businesses, partially because I'm too lazy to cook at home, it's really inspiring to see a story like HelloFresh that exploded and now is, is the source of a lot of happiness for people and has made their lives a lot uh, easier. We're so excited to hear your story, Patrick. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Let's kick off with your background. I know that your background's really interesting because it wasn't obvious that you were going to end up starting a company like HelloFresh. Mm-hmm. No, not at all. I, um, I actually started off life, if I took it way, way back to, to like the earliest memories, it would be uh, starting my own little, uh, little business going around my neighborhood washing cars at the weekends. Um, but it was always something for me doing something like a little bit offbeat and uh, an entrepreneur, I suppose. Which is like, just I like being my own boss and making my own money. Uh, but that didn't necessarily translate into my first career, which was as a lawyer. Um, I did law at university because honestly, I I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. Law sounded impressive. Um, and I thought it would look good on my CV, you know, all the kind of things that seem really important when you're at university. And then I left and I vowed I would never become a lawyer until I found that getting into management consultancy wasn't really suited because of my, my degree. And then, um, then my friends started becoming lawyers and I just, and I specifically remember thinking, I will be damned if they're going to earn more money than me after I've suffered through this law degree for four years. So, uh, so I applied to um, Clifford Chance and, um, and I got a job there and immediately, uh, as soon as I arrived, I just realised this was completely the wrong decision. And so I suppose every, every day I was just thinking about what, I, what I'd be able to do, what my escape plan would be and I knew that cooking was something that I loved and uh, it was a long story. You want the story? Yeah, I mean, I'm also curious how you know, your family and friends reacted to it because going from lawyer to cooking, yeah. you know, that, that doesn't necessarily seem like the most obvious thing. So yeah, I'd love to hear the full story. Um, I mean, yeah. Wow. My mum was not, she was, I think she was quietly petrified at what I was doing because I had given up this seemingly perfectly good, solid career that would last me until retirement uh, in exchange for, you know, the biggest risk possible. And um, I, I don't even think she realized I like cooking that much. And, um, but yeah, what happened was I, I was always thinking, what, what do I want to do? What do I want to do? Cooking was always there in the background. And then I was talking to a friend of mine in Los Angeles one weekend on the phone. Um, she, she works in television and she said, oh, we've been looking for some new formats for shows. And I said, well, I've got this idea for a cooking show. And I gave it to her and really it was only a joke. But a week later she called me up and she was all excited and she said, listen, the people at the network, they loved your idea. I was like, what idea? She's like, the cooking show idea. And um, she said, why don't we film a pilot? You could pretend to be the chef. And I was literally sitting there in front of another 
gargantuan revolving credit facility agreement, which is about as sexy as it sounds. And <laughs> um, and I thought, sod it, why not? So I booked a flight to LA. I had 10 weeks to prepare. And um, so I started doing all of these weird things like everything I would do, I would do out loud. So if I was washing plates at home, I would wash the dish and I would say, and the reason why I'm washing the dish is because I want to cut through the grease and, uh, and, I, and I want to make sure that it's clean so that I can stack it in the cupboard. And, my, and when I was shaving, I'd be like, the reason why I'm shaving upwards now is because of this. And my housemate, when he would hear glimpses, you know, this, he would think, he was like, what are you doing? Because I didn't tell anyone what I was doing because it seemed like total madness. A lawyer doesn't fly to LA to be a TV chef. Um, but this one apparently wanted to do that. So I flew out there 10 weeks later, having never been in front of a camera crew, having never cooked on film, obviously. And um, the next thing I know, I'm in front of a studio full of cameras, lights, producers, runners, director. And then suddenly they all turn to look at this total imposter. The director says, action. And I just remember just, I was just petrified. Did like, you blank? Uh, yeah. Like uh, my heart was pounding out of my chest. My throat was constricted. I was hyperventilating basically. Um, they had to stop because they were like, no, we need to stop. Needs to change his t-shirt. I can see the sweat marks. And, um, and I just remember having the worst imposter syndrome because all of these people seemed to me like, you know, they were there because they knew what they were doing. That was their job. And I, in my head, the voice said, you know, they're all thinking, who is this guy? Which is, you know, that just that, that, that really useless self-talk that we all have that doesn't serve really any purpose at all. Um, so anyway, got through the day. And actually, I didn't do a bad job. Like, I look back on it. And is it was there like, footage on YouTube? Yeah, there is footage on YouTube. Oh, you got to find it. Um, we'll I'm, put it in the show notes, guys. Yeah, yeah or, maybe, or maybe not. And, um, yeah, there's a little bit of footage out there. And it wasn't so bad, um, but it wasn't my, my finest moment by, by a long chalk. And so, got back to the UK, and it kind of petered out. Nothing came of it. And... Um, and then I was left with that choice. It was like, well, there was this, you know, this was an amazing adventure. And um, and it could just be a, a great story that I would tell to people that I went and did this fun thing. And, you know, when, I, when I'm old and grey and, and a partner in, in the banking department or something. Or I could commit myself to saying, you know what? This is something I really want to do for the rest of my life. I want to work in food. And, and you know what? I want to have a TV show. Why not? And, you know, yeah, I'd like, I'd like a TV show because because I'd like to teach a lot of people how to cook and that would be a good way to do it. But I'm not going to lie, the idea of being a TV chef sounded pretty fun to me, considering yeah. I was doing a job that I hated. Yeah. So um, so I wrote down on the top of a piece of paper, I had just been reading, don't judge me, I'd just been reading The Secret by Rhonda Byrne. And, um, and <laughs> Wish it, it and make it so. And it, Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, just think it and it will come true. And... That's not quite how it works, but I've got to say, though, that I learned a lot of stuff from that book. It was like my gateway book into that genre, and it made me realize that simple things like language are so, so powerful. Like when you say, I might, I should, I could, that those words are useless. It's like either I will or just don't say anything at all. Because the moment you say, I might, or I think I might, you're like, then you're even further away from actually doing something. Yes, I think Yoda said, do or do not. There is no try. There you go. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> and well, there's no, there's no better advice than that. I mean, he's, he's, he's the man. 
So, um, so that got me thinking, and it certainly got me thinking about visualization, like like real, or you know, or, or let's call it something a little bit more concrete, like goal setting. Mm. But that's what it was, or creating a business plan or a life plan, or whatever you want to call it. But I wrote down on the top of a piece of paper, by this date, I want to have a TV show and I want to be working in food for the rest of my life. Very big, grandiose, kind of undefined goal. But then underneath it, wrote the eight steps, small steps that I would need to take to even get a shot at the top goal. So that was things like learn from anyone who will teach me. Um, study cookbooks, do more cooking at home, start a YouTube channel, uh, cooking in your kitchen so you can practice being in front of the camera that one in particular was considered extremely weird behavior in 2007 when youtube had just started and and lawyers didn't pretend to be tv chefs on the internet and like i I didn't really tell many people about it at work um it was like this weird private indulgence and um and that's it and i just worked my way through the steps and i think the thing with those steps was that each one of them was hard, but the only barrier to entry was my willingness to do them. It wasn't like I had to depend on somebody else to actually go through those motions. It was just depending on me and my ability to show up. And then and then going through all those steps, I thought, you know what? I may not get the top goal, but when the opportunity comes to get the top goal, I will be ready for it. And that requires a lot of... Uh, a lot of blind faith. I was going to say discipline, but I think really blind faith is more more appropriate because when you're working in the basement kitchen of Brindiza, the Spanish restaurant in South Kensington, on a Saturday afternoon, pulling the bones out of a fish fillet, uh, and your friends are sending you messages saying, we're at the park having a barbecue, come down, let's get on it. And I'm like in this kitchen doing that. You're thinking, what the hell am I doing? I'm, like, I'm not even anywhere near close to my goal right now. Um, but you just have to keep on plugging away. And, you know, they say, hold the vision, trust the process. All of the, I'm going to probably say a lot of other cliche stuff, cliche stuff yeah, during but- the course of this. But honestly, I, I say them because they're cliches for a reason. They, 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 <laughs> they work. They're true. A lot of them. But the, the, the cliches, even though people, you know, will make mock them, as you said, there's probably some truth to them, but there's a, probably a dark side to them as well, which is there are hobbies which when paid or when transformed into businesses lose their charm and cooking as a side thing whilst you're a lawyer probably looked a lot sexier than it was when you were, as you said, in Brindisa, you know, working on a fish. Now that you look through your years as a chef, you know, at HelloFresh, would you say that the passion that you had prior to doing this full time is still there? Has it now become a job? And and is there a transformation that people will go through when they consider their hobbies into full time gigs? Yeah, when I was in the weeds, and that was the weeds for me was uh, the first few years of HelloFresh when I was just in my little kitchen at home, uh, day in, day out, just developing recipe of the recipe of the recipe by myself. That was, that turned something that was a passion into something that was yet considerably more onerous. It had a whole other level of pressure and it turned something that 
because create well, as far as I feel, creativity thrives in an environment of flow. And flow comes from a sense of calm, comes from a sense of relaxation, for me at least. Um, or a sense of, a sense of, I don't know, excitement. Flow comes from excitement too. Flow doesn't necessarily come from, yeah, like just drudgery. Like, and I, I can't call it drudgery, but that would be unfair on, on what I was doing. It was, it, was, it was still a creative process, but holy crap, like I had targets to reach. At the end of each week, we need to have this many recipes and those recipes needed to work as well. And I wasn't just cooking the recipes. We couldn't afford a photographer or a stylist, uh, any of that stuff. So I was, and each of our recipes has six photographs on it to show you the various stages of the recipe so that you always know while you're going through the recipe that you're on track with it. Well, I had to cook the recipe to, to stage one, run out into the living room, put it down on the floor, take a photograph of it, run back into the kitchen, start cooking it again and do this six times for each recipe and then take the finished dish shot at the end of the recipe as well. So it was like a marathon each day trying to trying to do three, four, five recipes. And yeah, that, that, that definitely took the sheen off it a bit. But now I don't do as much of I don't do that kind of cooking anymore. We have a team of chefs and we have a very, very different, far, far more advanced system for creating the recipes, uh, which is really, I can talk about that later, but it's seen our recipe scores and as a result, our customer retention really go through the roof. Um, so now the cooking I do is a little bit more for fun, like yeah. fun in the sense that I might be doing demonstrations or, or what have you. So if... if, if you have to give a piece of advice to a founder considering taking their hobby and making it into a business. What is the one question you would encourage them to ask themselves? If you could, if you could go back in time and say, dude, look, ain't going to be pretty. You're going to be taking pictures of permutations of dishes times 12 every day. Mm. Are you really sure you want to do this? Is there anything that people can do to sort of fast forward? I think what I would do is, um, it's a slightly different angle I would take to this. I would start with saying to them, what is your ideal lifestyle? What it, how do you see yourself in, 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 the, in the perfect place where you're incredibly happy and you feel fulfilled creatively, you feel comfortable financially? What does that look like? And then reverse engineer that vision. Because in fact, it's very easy to, to start off trying to create a business with some very vague notion of just wanting to be like wealthy beyond dreams of avarice and, and not knowing exactly what that looks like and then just kind of working at it, but with, with a, without a sense of kind of real direction and purpose and knowing exactly what you're aiming for. And, and I would, so I would apply that kind of questioning to, to, to that problem or to, to, to that, to that scenario. And if it was specifically about someone turning a hobby into something that could become a business. Well, I would say to them, you know, again, the most a general question, which I'd always ask is, you know, how passionate are you about that thing? Because, because you are going to be doing it 24 seven and there are going to be times when this is incredibly brutal on you. And, and do you, do you have enough passion for that hobby or that idea 
that's going to push you through the times when you feel absolutely broken because there are going to be those times. We all have them. Um, so yeah, exactly how passionate are you about it? And and I suppose, are you willing to get into that space where in fact this this isn't your a fun hobby anymore, but this mm. is certainly something that you have to think about a lot more seriously. Are you happy to cross that, that chasm? Mm. So if we go back to where we left off in the story, mm. 2007, 2008, yeah. early days. So we left off you sort of conceptualizing the idea of, of, of doing this full time, but we didn't quite get into the beginnings of HelloFresh and what was the mm-hmm. original thesis behind that Yeah, and, and sort of what was that first step you took and the team and, and all that stuff. So maybe you can walk us through that bit. Yeah, sure. Well, um, it actually got to, to, I'd left the city by this point. I'd started, I mean, I started moonlighting in kitchens in my spare time. I would work in the fine dining kitchen of Clifford Chance in my lunch times in secret, um, churning out you know, salmon or crude for clients and instead of their contracts. And then I would go back to my desk like nothing had happened. I would work in restaurants around town. Uh, after work over weekends and eventually just thought enough's enough I need to quit uh, and really really go for it um, and then worked in, a, in in restaurants here and there and what have you but it was 2011 when um, the idea of HelloFresh first came up and the way it happened for me was a friend on Facebook said to me these guys are looking at um, expanding a, a, a food concept into the UK and they really want to talk to somebody who knows about food. Uh, I think you should have a chat with them. So I went along, it was November 2011, um, met a couple of people who would then become my co-founders for HelloFresh in the UK. And um, basically, we, we have two global CEOs, Dominic and Thomas. Um, they had got some seed capital from Rocket Internet and um, had seen an idea that works in, that was working in Sweden for a similar kind of idea, but it was more based around family market and thought that it could work uh, if we were aiming it more at busy couples. So they they got in touch with um, um, this guy in the UK and then I spoke to him and, and it went from there. So in fact, HelloFresh didn't just start in the UK and Germany, but also it started at the same time in the Netherlands and, and also in Australia. Um, so we had seed capital, a very small amount, and uh, that was November 2011, and, and actually it was just before we were kind of going away for Christmas, and we got back after Christmas, and and we said, right, okay, yeah, this is a this is an exciting idea, let's go for it, let's try and make let's try and make it happen, and instead of spending three months in research and development going out asking people what did they really want and and trying to create the perfect box and the perfect logo and a really snappy strap line we spent two weeks throwing together this like minimum viable product doesn't even it would would be overstating it i mean it was 10 crappy looking paper bags of shopping with a logo from clip art that we had printed in the print shop around the corner from my house on old street. We packed the bags in my living room. I was wrapping bits of cheese in cling film. We were handwriting little thank you notes to our first 10 customers who were basically our parents and a couple of friends who were trying to humor us and um, delivered them by hand. And that was it. And I, to this day, I still believe that there's such 
wisdom <laughs> i mean it may have been unintentional wisdom but there is a real there's something to that approach because you can spend and i've seen it three months six months a whole ton of money trying to create something which you think is perfect for your target customer to then realize that it isn't what your target customer wants at all and in fact the person that you're targeting isn't even interested in it anyway someone else is perhaps interested in it or perhaps nobody is but we, you know, there was that saying, was it the, the guy, was it um, the guy that started uh, Snapchat? I think he said we we threw ourselves off the cliff and we built the plane on the way down. I love that saying because it, cause it really describes, I think, what so many of us are going through, where you just get on with it and you iterate as you go. And then you, and you iterate with live feedback from people who are actually paying money rather than people who are just humoring you. Mm. And, um, you know, and that's how the first year was spent really was, was just, just, I mean, it's how, to be honest, is how it's still spent every mm. single day. The product is being iterated in some way, uh, according to customer feedback, uh, and whatever it might be. What, what was the biggest le- learning slash mistake, uh, in that first year? I think the biggest learning was just that we, we were we, we tried every possible marketing technique that we could think of. And, and at the beginning, nothing was really sticking. We would run around tube stations dressed as carrots. That, that apparently is not actually allowed um, and scares small children. We, we would um, go to uh, fairs and, and cooking events and what have you. And we would set up stands there and we did this crazy thing the omelette challenge where we would get people to go head to head cooking an omelette as fast as they could like they do on um, on tv shows and um, to create a bit of buzz and i'd have a megaphone walking around trying to drum people up but you know for the amount of work that we put into those events we weren't getting a huge return on that either and um yeah it was just it was we, we went through all sorts of different things uh, until we then found a couple of a couple of channels which really stuck for us and for which I think we really became known, particularly in London. And one of those was definitely handing out discount cards at the, at the tube. Uh, that became a really, really big thing for us. The reason why it became big for us, I believe, is because we had our work cut out when we started because we were starting a new category Recipe boxes did not exist in the UK or anywhere else in the world for that matter, aside from Sweden, um, until we started them. I mean, obviously, we were starting in those other countries too. But it was very much a case that people were looking at these products and thinking, well, why do I even need this? I, I go to the supermarket. That's how I get my shopping. I'm perfectly happy with the status quo. And... And I guess we were trying to do what you know what Apple does is make people like realize that they they need this thing that frankly they never needed before and suddenly make it indispensable in their life. But how do you do that? You need to have some kind of entry level for them to, to, to discover it for themselves. And in our case, that was simply if we could get them to try that first box, they would have that aha moment that actually oh, I see it now, I get it. This isn't just delivering my groceries. This is so much more than food. I can see that they've they've basically taken away all of the reasons why I'm not cooking from scratch at home. They're making it fun again. And, and once people would have that realisation, 
then they would really get on board with us. So that going, you know, going back to your question and the learnings was one of the biggest things for us is, was realizing that we need to take that risk. We need to, we need to, we need to give them the product at an incredible discount where we're, we're going to make no money at all, but on the basis that we know that we'll make that back further down the line because they'll realize that this is something that really fits into their life. Mm. I know you've spoken with a lot of founders lately and probably compared notes on how to acquire customers. And you look back at the when HelloFresh started and you were able to pull this off. If you had to do HelloFresh all over again, that first, you had to play out that whole first year again, do you think that this idea of like burning cash on free uh, packages of, of, in effect, goods that expire, does that work in 2018? Or, or, or have you seen that you know, these kinds of things need to change year on year and, and now some, it takes something else to, to really succeed? And what, what would that be if you had to take a punt? I think it really... I can... From, from personal experience and um, the way we've done things and my interaction with other brands, I really think there's still a lot to be said for giving someone that experience um, to break their, to break the status quo. An example would be when I was growing up, the first razor blade I was introduced to was Gillette. And I carried on using that happily for the next 15 years because why would I, why would I change from Gillette? Gillette's the best a man can get. <laughs> until I went to an event and a goodie bag was given to me and, and they gave me a Wilkinson sword and then I tried that and I was like, whoa, this is way better and I'm going to completely now change the habit of a lifetime and if I if I did shave, which I don't anymore, um, then I would have used, you know, I'd be using that and I think that's the thing is that people, they go along and once they've made a decision about something, it's like they don't want to have to think about that thing anymore. They don't want that cognitive strain. They're just like, they just want to, that box is ticked. You need to break that mental kind of that, that, that cycle that they're in or that way of thinking. And to do that, I think you need to give them a proposition, which is so easy for them to accept that really costs them zero effort and very, very little money. And then you've got a very good chance of creating a lifetime customer. And when did you feel confidence intersected with actuals? In your case, how long from the moment that you started 2011 till your confidence mapped with what the numbers were showing as there was something there? I would say the first year was a challenging time because, as I say, we were working through different types of marketing channels and we weren't necessarily sure which one would, would stick and which one would, which one would bear fruit. But as we got through the first year and we discovered certain marketing channels, like, you know, as simple as it is, you know, discount cards at the tube station, or in fact, using um, events where we were face-to-face -face with customers, it was then that we realized that there is a real appetite for this. And what was key for us as well was, as I say, it was educating the market. I think we needed to get to a point where people knew what recipe boxes meant and it didn't need so much explanation. And, and that's when you know, once there was a, there was a, I couldn't tell you when the tipping point was, but it, it would get to that point. I think where after a couple of years, certainly you would explain what you did to people and they would say, Oh yeah, I've heard of that. 
and even and even now I'll say, oh, well, we have this recipe box thing, and we send that, and they're like, oh my god, what? No, no, you mean like Hello Fresh? And I'm like, oh yeah, no, you know it. And it kind of and I started that. that. I started that. <laughs> that's, that's when you throw that in there, right? And that, it's and, it, and it's that. still and I'm still I feel I'm like yeah, cool, man. People know about what we do because I remember when they really really didn't. Yeah. But it's that it's like getting to that critical mass where enough people know what you're doing, and then you feel like okay, I think you know we're good here. And what I would add actually to this point about acquisition and that's something that founders might want to think about something that we certainly saw is that particularly when whether you have a new product or not i think particularly when you do have a very new category but just generally speaking i found with our products that the personal approach has always been the strongest it's the hardest it's the most labor involved but there is no substitute for an impassioned person speaking to a potential customer and being there to explain the ins and outs of the service putting up a billboard in piccadilly circus or having a massive tube campaign or on the sides of buses or even a tv advert is not a very helpful exercise if you've got a product which needs a degree of explanation and and so you know having a, a sales events doing door-to-door sales which seems extremely old-fashioned but those those channels are actually incredibly effective because you get to have that human contact and you get to reassure people that yeah this is new and you haven't tried it before but there are so many great reasons why you should and look it's actually zero risk to you so you know why not give it a go you've got nothing to lose mm-hmm. you can't explain that you can't bring across that emotion in a billboard yeah. you know that's that the billboard comes way further down the line and yeah we do we do tube campaigns now we do television advertising but that's because those things simply remind people of an emotion they probably already felt when they met one of us. Yeah. And they've met a lot of us now because we, you know, we've met a lot of people because we do a lot of events. Yeah. So it's a very good nugget of wisdom. Basically don't preempt that relationship with a, a, a broad based campaign because it will fall flat until you have that relationship in some capacity. Yeah. Though, I mean, I'll tell you though, maybe there's one exception to what I'm saying in that it was the first year of HelloFresh and, and we decided to go, all out on television advertising we're like we are gonna go we're gonna go deep we're gonna we're gonna put all our chips on the table now and so we went up to manchester me as um the person who's doing the cooking in front of the camera um our managing director ed um was the delivery boy and we did a tv ad and it cost us five thousand pounds which at the time we thought was an incredible amount of money it was a big risk for us and so we shot this tv ad and um and then and then we we then showed that tv ad on air probably for the next two years because we we didn't have the time or and we weren't putting the budget towards doing another ad um so (laughs) this this ad i'm I, i mean i'm Basically, I was kind of nervous when we were doing the ad, and and um, when I had to deliver these lines, you know, it was quite for me. I was being quite intense about it. I was like trying to really remember. What are the lines? What are the lines? Remind me. It was like it was like, hi, my name is Patrick. I'm the head chef at HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the new recipe delivery service that makes you know it makes it easy for you to cook at home. Um, You know, we send you the exact ingredients and um, portioned out so that all you need to do is cook delicious meals at home in 30 minutes, something like that. And, um, 
And I and I didn't blink once when I was delivering these lines because I was like really focusing yeah. so hard on trying to remember them. So we would get um, comments on our social media every week saying, "Why is it with the guy on your TV ad? Why doesn't he blink?" <laughs> and um, but the funny thing was, is this ad that cost us five thousand pounds ended up being one of the best performing TV ads we've ever had. And I swear it was probably because people were just like hypnotized by this really intense chef dude on the TV just like staring doesn't at him. Doesn't blink. Yeah, he doesn't blink. Now I'm like paying attention to whether you're blinking right now. <laughs> I'm like... Strangely I'm, don't blink at all. I know, it's weird. <laughs> Fish. Um, so, yeah, it was funny. I mean, that, that £5,000 ad, I don't think it did... I don't think it did so well for us when we first released it in that first year because, again, no one really knew about what recipe boxes were. But when we repeated that ad through into the second and I think partially into the third year, um, it actually performed really well. Mm. Well, talking about emotions, what was the emotional low point for you? I mean, I'm I'm sure that you might have had some in the first year, but like, let's just be inclusive of from the very beginning till today. Was there an emotional low point for you in terms of the the strategy or where the company was headed financially or, or just relationship with your co-founders? Um, do you know, it's, it's, uh, no, I think I've, I've really, I've really loved the process because even when it's been incredibly difficult, I've been fortunate enough to work with people who, I just adore like my co-founder Luke is like a brother to me I, I I just loved working with him like he he actually just um he just um left to go and start a new company recently but we had five almost six of the most like awesome years I mean it was like the wild west when we started when we were when we were first doing recipe development for instance um I was in charge of like creating the recipes, photographing them, writing the copy and that kind of stuff. Luke was in charge of the procurement of all of the ingredients, of having them delivered to the warehouse, putting in the boxes and the logistics of sending them out. He had a crazy job on his hands. And when we were choosing recipes for upcoming boxes, each week that recipes were created, we would put the recipe cards in a line um, from top to bottom on the wall in the office. And each week a new line of recipes would be put on the wall. And eventually this line of recipes, it was like a big grid of them, went around the entire office wall. And Luke and I would sit there at nights on, you know, and this was late and we were exhausted. Um, and by all rights, we should have been pretty broken by the kind of work we were doing in terms of it was gruelling. But we would sit on our wheelie chairs and we would wheel ourselves around the corridor looking at the recipes on the wall and planning what the next box would be. And it was fun. And, you know, back in the early days, our, our, our boardroom was also our spice packing room. It's where we would sit there with big bags of cumin and cor- ground coriander and we would spoon them into little pots. And then every time we had a, an important meeting or a new supplier was coming, everyone was all hands on deck trying to clear down the boardroom of all the spice pots and make it seem as though we were a, a you know, professional company. And they would come in and never to do Why does it smell funny? Like, what's the smell of like ground coriander? What's that all about? Um, so, I don't know. I... Maybe I tend to have this this rose tinted glass that I look through on my life generally, but 
I see I see so much positive. It, the only thing that was ever hard was simply just the grind. Like it was so much work to be done. But we well, had it's a very physical type of business, right? It's not like a yeah. kind of business where you, you don't have assets. You have a lot of assets. You have inventory. You have things that are expiring. And maybe, maybe in that sense, you can walk us through how your job has evolved over the years because it sounds like it was very hands-on at the very beginning, mm-hmm. including the, the, the actual cooking. Yeah. But then how has it grown? Because now presumably you have a lot of people underneath you. And how have you as an as a individual sort of kept yourself up to date and relevant in, in, in sort of evolving internally? Yeah, I think it's a really, that's such a great question. And, you know, really, that really taps into like some deep kind of like personal stuff, especially when you say like, how do you keep yourself relevant? And it's something that, you know, you do have to think about. You really do because the person that you are when you start the company, you become something very different. And if you don't evolve with the company, then you're going to become a relic. And so, yeah, when I first started, I was head chef and I was cooking all the recipes and doing copywriting and and getting involved in like brand and PR and a bit of product development. And it got to about year three and I remember thinking, well, I can't, I can't just be in the kitchen for the rest of my life. Like this is... I can't still be doing the recipes in 10 years time, but the conflicting part of me, that little voice in the head, that little bit of ego says, but this is who you are. You cook the recipes. You're the head chef. If you don't do that, then what are you going to do? And you have to, you have to get over that. You have to not, and that's a big thing in, in any business that you're starting in, 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 in any venture is to not let that little voice of ego take you down a path of small things and small thinking you have to relinquish you know your position or what you do so that you can move on to do something different something perhaps bigger something that perhaps only you're qualified to do and I think by the time we got to year three there were people that were coming up through the company who were perfectly well qualified in some cases more qualified to be cooking than I am because they'd had way more experience like we have uh, um, our chef Andre now he's a career chef you know the guy has so much experience and you have to be able to let that go and then move on to the next thing and so for me moving on to the next thing means that now I, I suppose I, I involve myself in a lot more projects across the company so whether it it might be our cookbook which we've just um, we've just finished which I happen to have a copy of here oh, nice. <laughs> which I'd like, love to come back to um, and um, you know it, it'll be PR it will be um, a lot of stuff around messaging it might be working on campaigns like we did this fantastic campaign a while back with um, the Felix Project which is a food waste charity in London where we sold two and a half thousand boxes of Hello Fresh. Actually, had the box in our hand and sold it to someone on the street for as much as they were willing to pay, and then we gave all of the money to um, to the Felix Project. Or as now, I'm, I'm incredibly passionate about is looking at us as a sustainable business, and you know how you know how are we talking about the way that we treat our employees and. And the, work, the, the fantastic work environment that we're creating, mm. and what are we doing for the wider community? And and sustainability, also in terms of, of value chain, because I know that Pret, for example, had to make some difficult decisions about what in, what um, 
products they stocked because they just couldn't get enough ingredients for that specific product because they had locked up the market or it was or no longer scalable do you guys have to deal with that as well um so what you mean like coconuts yeah quinoa and or something should we be ordering this amount of um avocado and what, what have you i don't know the specifics of of like how i mean i know that we we have such a large procurement team now and and their values today are still very much the same as our values were back in back in the very beginning, which is that we want to work with people who it's not about labels, not whether it says it's organic or it's this or it's mm-hmm. that. It's really about understanding something on a far more fundamental granular level. It's meeting those suppliers and 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 feeling that they are ethical and responsible and they're they're people that we want to stand by and not just work with them but feel proud that we work with them and actually talk about them to our customers because we realize our customers want to know they want to they want to be put back in touch with these mm. people because we're so distanced from our food now mm. uh, and it's nice to be able to tell people the story of it so that's still very much the values that that the procurement team has um so, so on, on that point, on values and yeah. you know your recruitment team, you're specifically speaking about, but maybe we could broaden it. Uh, you were mentioning earlier sustainability, and now we're reflecting on how some of these attributes came from you, but maybe from other co-founders in your team. Let's talk about culture in that mm-hmm. context then, yeah. because values, sustainability, they all sound like elements of culture. Yeah. And one of the things that seems to come up time and time again is that business models can be copied, but culture can't. Yeah. And that the culture of a business determines its brand, and therefore the brand is an extension of culture mm-hmm. with, the, with the customer in mind. Walk us through how you have been the conduit for culture, elements of the company culture that you see came directly from you, and elements, like any human being, you have bad habits, um, things that maybe you wish you know, you didn't have, but leaked into the culture. Any any sort of insight into sort of the HelloFresh culture that, that you sort of kickstarted? Yeah, okay, this is huge for us. Um, since the very, very beginning, since there were five of us in that office, um, culture and mission have been huge, like very central part of, of, of who we are and why we do what we do. At the beginning, your biggest concerns are the things that seem most immediate, the the fires that are burning most brightly and fiercely, things like we've got to get the product created, we've got to ship the product, we've got to, we've got to make sure that we're getting customer acquisition right. All of these things, they're, they're the lifeblood of the company, absolutely. And therefore, culture and mission, they seem like frivolities that you don't really have the time for. But I believed and have seen it happen now in other companies that if you don't look after culture you don't think about mission and purpose and why that'll come home to roost in say year two year three year three around about then if you've got that really strong culture in the beginning though it really really helps because as i say you're going to go through really difficult times you're going to question why are we here why the hell am i here this late at night doing this thing and i think that comes from from believing in what you're doing, I, I think it comes from having a product where you can see that there is some, frankly, greater good in it, because that inspires people. For, uh, if you want that, that helps with employer branding. People want to come and work for a company where they believe that there's something bigger picture going on, 
And I'm really proud that the core product of HelloFresh is about the bigger picture. It's about teaching people the basic skills to learn how to cook really good nutritious food from scratch. And that's the wonderful thing is that a lot of companies have to find a bolt-on to give themselves a sense of purpose and mission. It's like we we do this product, which is frankly kind of self-serving um, and all about us you know, making an incredible amount of money. Um, but we're going to have some charity affiliation with this charity over here. And it's very, very transparent what's going on there. Mm-hmm. When you can build in a sense of like, you know, let's, we can call it sustainability. And sustainability isn't just about environment, by the way. Sustainability is about, is this a sustainable business from the perspective of, do people want to carry on working here? Do customers want to keep on buying from us? And yes, are we looking after the environment? All of these different things are rolled into that. And if you can build that into the actual DNA of your company from the beginning, it's going to make life so much easier. And it's going to be so much more exciting for you. You're going to feel so much more driven by by what you're doing. And yeah, you know, when you're young, um, God, I can't believe I just said when you're young. But, <laughs> but for the record, he's very young. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 39 now. Um, but I remember a time when when these things weren't that important to me. Like I was, I was more driven by in my 20s. I was driven by the idea of money and by success and ambition and all these kinds of things. But trust me, when you get to a certain point, and I, I, I don't want to sound grandiose about it, but I believe that you'll, that people will want to have a legacy. Like they'll want to do something that, that, you know, they can stand back from and think, you know what, I did that and I'm proud of it because that actually helped a bunch of people and it made a difference. And again, yeah, that's a kind of cliche but it's true. At the end of the day, what is it that what is it that makes us feel satisfied and happy and fulfilled as human beings? It's I, I truly believe it's contribution um, and it's making other people's lives better. And some people find that through, you know, through raising a family. And some people want to go beyond family and they want to go into community. And then some people want to go beyond that and they want to create companies which can change many, many lives. Well, the, the idea of changing many, many lives is attractive when you have the freedom to do that. Yeah. And in a private small company, you are the dictator, in effect, of how you will address that and who you will help. But as you start scaling and you start getting momentum and you have other people's opinions jumping in, which include investors' opinions and you know middle management opinions, it starts getting harder and harder. And... You know, the last question that I have, you know, before we kind of do a, a couple of fun ones is with the IPO, and I know that you have limitations in what you can share, but with, with the IPO where financially there's a lot of exposure and restrictions set upon a public company, what were the major changes that needed to take place in terms of culture and values to accommodate that new type of shareholder and if, if, there were, if there were any changes or if there was anything that needed to be done, what advice would you give to a founder to prepare for that moment if, if they were to ever find themselves in it? What I would say is that the reason, presumably the reason that you, you've got into a position where you can IPO is because of 
who you are, what you do, and why you do it as a company. It's those things, that unique package that you've created, which is in fact the thing that is that makes you an attractive IPO proposition. And so from that perspective, don't change a thing. Like turn those dials up. Do more of what you're doing. Do more of what makes you unique in terms of the more hardcore structural side of it, which I am not an expert on. Um, but there's clearly going to be a lot that you need to do in terms of ticking certain regulatory boxes and making sure that you are doing your reporting in in, in a particular manner. And that's a, that's a whole other ball game. That in fact, if it, and I, what I would say is, if that's not your area of expertise, and it's something that is so incredibly important, and and I'm sure you know people could think of cautionary tales of people that perhaps haven't appreciated the complexity of the IPO process, and and as a result have fallen foul of it um, post IPO. Get someone in who can do that. Or, or, you know, set up a team that specifically deal with that part of the business so that you, as a founder, are not distracted from what it is that you do best and the thing that has, you know, that you, the thing that you do to bring your incredible value to the company. Because when you start splitting your attention across two things, perhaps one is not your area of strength, that's when the problems can arise. And I suppose I would say that not just about an IPO, but about anything that you're doing is that if at some point you feel like you're splitting your attention across things where perhaps your attention your your skill set is not most suited to it then get somebody who who can do it and this is something that I've always had front of mind this great saying which is that type A people hire type A people and type B people hire type C people. And the fact is that when you're building your team, you want to make sure that you're hiring people who are as good as you, if not better, and not feel afraid of doing that. Because if you're hiring people uh, below you out of some sense of insecurity that they're going to usurp your position, then that's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Well, to wrap things up, I want to ask completely unrelated questions to HelloFresh. Um, what's uh, what's left on your bucket list my bucket list uh has really radically changed um in even in the course of the last year but and then i i really am starting to think about family now and about you know what is that what is that next part of my life going to look like you know i was talking about this idea of fulfillment and about you know building something about legacy or you know there's no greater legacy than the family that you have and so I'm beginning to think of those things. I can't even believe I'm thinking about it. I never, I, it was never on my radar, but it's something as simple as that. Honestly, it's about, I, I'm not going to sound like, well, I'm a bit of a hippie, I suppose, but it's about, it's about an inner journey more. It's about discovering more about who I am and what makes me tick and how I can optimize my, like my physical well-being, my mental well-being, and just kind of exploring that part of my, myself. So spending a little more time, on that kind of work as well as you know the external building companies work that kind of jazz mm. if uh, if you had to have one superpower uh, that you don't already have because I, I believe you probably have a couple of superpowers already uh, what which one would it be wow I think it would be 
It would probably be time travel. Time travel. Yeah. Where'd you go? I would. I would go. I think you know that this is part of me that just. I would go. I would want to go back in time and correct certain things which I felt were injustices that happened to. If it was something that maybe happened to me, but also injustices that happened to other people, and I'll tell you one episode one of Star Wars. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like this is kind of this is a little sad, um, and I don't want to bring the atmosphere down. But one of our co-founders, Min, her name was, um, she uh, she was absolutely pivotal to creating the business in the UK. She's the most incredible, intelligent, wonderful woman. And and she got cancer and she passed away in her thirties. Like I sometimes think about God, I'd give anything to go back in time and be able to tell her to go and have that checkup before she did and, and do something about it. It's, it's kind of sad, but yeah, I mean that's still it's a part of her fresh history. But you know, I remember her so well because because I don't I don't believe we'd be where we are today without her. Not in the UK. Well, I get the vibe that HelloFresh seems like a big family to you. It feels that way. It really does. How, how big is the family now? Well, now we're in the UK um, head office. There's about 150 of us, so a lot bigger, and that means that it's definitely a preoccupation of mine to make sure that it still retains that kind of family vibe and that that people are mixing across departments and not becoming strangers, and that definitely becomes more difficult. And people say to you, you know what? When it gets to 50 or 60 people, it's all going to change. The culture's going to change. And I was like, no, it's not. It won't happen. Not at HelloFresh. We're too tight for that. And um, and it's true. Like it gets to that number, and suddenly people are walking down the corridor, and you're like, oh, I'm not sure I've met that person. <laughs> so who is this guy? So you really have to work hard at making sure that you're actually constructing that kind of uh, social friction that makes sure that people actually are meeting each other. And so we have a huge dining table in the middle of our office, which you can see on Worship Street through the windows. And um, the rule is, there's not many rules in the building, but one rule is that you have to have lunch downstairs. You can't have lunch at your desk. I mean, you can eat outside if you like, but if you're eating in the building, you eat at the table, and then and then that means that you're getting to meet people who you wouldn't otherwise meet. Just little things like that make a big difference. Wow. Well, thanks for joining us, Patrick. This is a very inspiring story. Did you want to share but another one? I want to share one more thing. Go for it. Go this for it. This is super important. All okay. right, go for it. So we've done six years now of HelloFresh, right? Yeah. And we have created these beautiful recipes. And the way we create them is by getting customer feedback. And they tell us what they think of the recipes, and then we reiterate the recipes. Yeah. So I just came out with our first cookbook. It's cookbook. Called, it's you called, come full circle. Now you're back to the TV chef. Yeah, exactly. It's called Recipes That Work. And it is the 100 best recipes uh, from the last six years as voted for by hundreds of thousands of HelloFresh customers. So So I'm looking at the book right now, guys. It's a very beautiful hardcover book with an amazing picture of Patrick wearing a uh, white shirt and an apron in the back. And it says, recipes that work, more than 100 step-by-step recipes and techniques. And how long did it take you to put this together? This was um, about a six-month project in total, but but the last three months particularly intense. Um, a lot of eating, a lot of recipe testing. It was it was like one of the best jobs ever. It really was. It was really really fun. Um, and I look at the book now, and it makes me hungry. And the thing about it is. This is not a coffee table book. It's going to be that most loved, sauce battered, pages folded down, go to in the kitchen. So 
Um, so that is my next big thing is like I really want to see this this baby doing well because I think that this book's going to make a difference to people. So it's on Amazon at the moment. Recipes that work. So I would, uh, I'll, I'll, I'm going, but I'm going to give you a copy. <laughs> wow! I need to get this autograph. That's what I need. No, this is amazing. Well, thanks, thanks again for your generosity of your time and and for what you've done because you know they they say that. Uh, Families that eat together, stay together, you uh-huh. know, and you probably have been the reason why families have, you know, spent time together eating and, and cooking and, and sort of sharing in that very familial activity. So I'm sure there's a, a special place in the afterlife for, for <laughs> people like you. <laughs> so, All right. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.